Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk, and today we're talking about a book that's set in a newsroom. So I was thinking, what other books have I read where there's like this newspaper man aspect to it? And if people who listen to the podcast know I love Greg Isles, and his most recent novel, Cemetery Road, is actually about someone who's a big-time reporter in Washington, D.C., and moves back to Bienville, Mississippi, and revitalizes the family newspaper called the Bienville Watchman. And this newspaper actually plays a critical role in the book. He like brings back the old printing presses at one point, and it's totally cool. So if you're like a newspaper person, you would geek out over this. That sounds so good. I'm Eliza Rosemary, and I've never read Greg Isles before. I know you're a huge fan, Tavia, but they're really big books, right? So I feel a little intimidated. They're long, but they are page turners. So you go right through. (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) So maybe I'll pick up Cemetery Road. I wanted to mention two books. One is News of the World, which we interviewed the author Paulette Giles recently. It's not quite set in a newsroom, but it's definitely about journalism and the value of news and all of that. And then I also wanted to mention The Shipping News by Annie Prue. And it's about a newspaper reporter who moves from New York to Newfoundland and is working on the the local newspaper there and like the sort of hijinks and local stories that he winds up covering. It's a really beautiful book. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's a really beautiful book. On today's show, a thrilling novel about a housewife turned aspiring reporter who pursues the murder of a forgotten young woman. Today, we are talking about the desires of a woman to prove her worth, intertwined with the eerie mystery of finding another woman's killer while encountering her ghost. Laura Lippman is here today to chat with us about her gripping mystery novel, Lady in the Lake. The best way to keep this podcast going is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We wanted to say thank you so much to Sparta Bookworm for this five-star review. We love new reviews and we always read them on the show. They say the podcast is fun, engaging, books that you want to read and listen to. Can't wait to get my hands on Mother May I, which listeners, you'll remember Mother May I is the new book by our podcast favorite, Jocelyn Jackson. And that's so cool. So you listened to last week's episode, the surprise bonus episode with the long audio excerpt. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sparta Bookworm. And now we present to you Lady in the Lake, Abridged. Maddie Schwartz was just your average housewife, seemingly happy on the outside, but yearning for more on the inside. After 20 years, Maddie decides to leave her marriage behind in search of a more meaningful life. She is on her way to finding herself and her passions when she stumbles upon something a bit more important, the body of a young girl. While working closely with the police, Maddie lands a job at the city newspaper, The Star. Her ambition leads her to investigate the disappearance of a young African-American woman, Cleo Sherwood, whose body was found in the fountain of a city park lake. But why is Maddie the only one who cares about this missing woman? Maddie's investigation involves several people, including Cleo's ghost. Will Maddie be able to get rid of her selfish ways to avoid unrest with the people she encounters throughout her murder investigation for Cleo Sherwood? Liza, what did you think of Lady in the Lake? I love Laura Littman, so this was a really fun read. I, you know, obviously I love a good mystery, and there were great twists and turns in this book. 
Obviously, we won't spoil the ending, but I was delighted by the ending. (laughs) But more so, I just really loved the tension that built up around these characters and the stakes involved. It was just a great reading experience. I agree. One thing that really stood out for me about this book was the time frame, the era in which it's set. I feel like the things that happened in this book would not have happened necessarily if they were set today. It's sort of essential to the events of the novel. The sort of housewife as an institution really still had to be a thing, right? And ambitious women had to not be a thing. Gays and interracial love still had to be really socially unacceptable for this plot to work. Yeah, totally. I loved the setting also. And you can tell Laura Lippman knows Baltimore really well and also has sort of like an intimate understanding of newsrooms and journalism culture and all of that. It was really fun reading about Baltimore, especially, I think. So fun fact, I went to college in Baltimore. So every time I read a Laura Lippman novel, I'm like, know where that is. Been there. I think you went to college in Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. And also, do you know Laura Lippman got her start as a journalist? I do, yeah. At the Sun. Yeah. It's unsurprising after reading this. Totally, right? So oh, another thing about this book that I thought was remarkable was we read a lot of books where there's like two points of view and they flip back and forth and sometimes they're in different time periods. This book had like two dozen points of views. It was amazing. I couldn't believe how seamlessly and fluidly she would just bring in these new voices. And we knew exactly who was talking. I never felt any confusion about it. Yeah, that's a real skill as a writer to be able to move between these perspectives so seamlessly and not have it really disrupt the reading experience. Also, Maddie. Wow. I can't say that I liked her, (laughs) but I certainly admired her. She had such drive and she, you know, again, this is, I think is another perhaps indication of the time. She had no bones about using her feminine wiles to get ahead and to get the job done. And the way that she does it in the book doesn't seem cliched, you know, and I couldn't really judge her for doing that because that was what the skills to the tools she had at hand. Yeah, I totally agree about Maddie. I think I definitely found her to be admirable, but you know, not necessarily likable. She's a tough character. She's not easy to like. She makes a lot of assumptions and missteps. There were definitely a lot of scenes where I was like, oh, Maddie, what are you doing? You know? (laughs) Yeah. But she's a very interesting character. And that's more important than being likable, I think. So she gets into a relationship with this character, Ferdy, who's a Black police officer. And then Cleo, the murder victim, is also Black. And the issues of race in this novel are very in-your-face, and I found them very sad. My sense of injustice was raised, but also I just felt this deep, deep sadness. One little fact that Laura presents in the novel is that Black police officers in Baltimore at the time had no path for advancement. And in fact, they weren't even allowed to have a police car. They could only do neighborhood walking beats. That level of detail really just added this sort of very intrinsic, organic sense to these issues of race and that were woven throughout the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Eliza, on that note, I think we should have a toast. (laughs) Cheers, Tavia. I've got my coffee I've cup. Got my coffee Cheers. Too. <laughs> Quick reminder that we love hearing from you, especially now that we are working from home. Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can stay connected with other book lovers and pose your own questions to authors who appear on our show. 
You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash the book club girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the audiobook of Laura Littman's newest book that will be out later this summer called Dream Girl. Today, we're joined by Laura Littman, whose book Lady in the Lake is out now. Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, Laura. We are so glad you're here and really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us today. So our first question. Lady in the Lake is such a great book. Tavi and I both loved it so much. I actually read it when it first came out. So this is especially exciting to get to talk to you about it now. Finally, we're not going to give it away, but I really loved the ending. And so with the ending in mind, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what inspired you to write the book and what you wanted readers to sort of take away. So I grew up in Baltimore and I was the daughter of a newspaper man. And as a result, I was very aware that there was a case when I was nine or 10 that involved the disappearance and murder of an 11-year-old girl. And that happened in real life in 1969. I had never heard about the death of Shirley Parker, which happened the same year. It probably would not have made the newspapers at all if it weren't for the strange place that her body was discovered, which was in a fountain. So this is a Black woman, and if she'd been found in the trunk of a car or an alley, it might not have ever been in the daily newspaper. It was a story that was covered at length in the weekly Afro-American newspaper here. That was the name of it, the Afro. And I was really struck by that. I was really struck by whose death matters, whose deaths we know about. And I wanted to write about it. I wasn't really sure what the vehicle would be. And I never set out to write a newspaper novel. Instead, I was thinking very much about Marjorie Morningstar and the fact that if you've read that book, At the end of the book, when an old admirer of her sees her and she's married and she has children, he describes her as looking grandmotherly. And she's 39. (laughs) It blew me away when I realized that. But I began thinking about how a lot of us have had that experience where we see someone from our past and it just sends us off in a different direction. I mean, I know people who have gone to high school reunions and fallen back in love with their high school sweetheart. But I could also see someone sort of caroming in the other direction, not toward the person, but toward the person's memory of who they said they were going to be. And so all of those things came together to make Lady in the Lake. And really early on in writing the book, I began thinking about these big questions of appropriation and who gets to tell whose story. And I realized that this book was almost a meta response to that, that this book in many ways is a dialogue between Maddie and her quarry, if you will, the dead woman, Cleo, who is the first person who speaks to us in the book. And Cleo is adamant that Maddie is not interested in her life. She's interested in her death, and those are not the same things. And I felt as a middle-aged white writer, that was about the best I could do in terms of writing stories about people who are not me, but acknowledging the way those stories have been rendered in the past, the way they're still rendered in a lot of ways. It's really a tangle. And the best I could do is examine it. I I don't promise that I have answers for it, but at least I could take it out and look at it and think about what I do and how I do it. So this leads me to my next question, which is about the main character, Maddie Schwartz, who Eliza and I both had a lot to say about during our discussion of the book earlier. 
she absolutely throws off that template of housewife. She does not want it. She's tired of it. Can you tell us a little bit more about her? And as you were writing her, did your thoughts about her change or did you always know who she would become? I always knew who Maddie would become. And I find Maddie infuriating and sometimes quite unlikable. But at the same time, I think that there's some me in Maddie. And I'm really trying to control for the Maddie in me. I don't want to be incurious. I don't want to move through the world not realizing that everybody has a story, which is Maddie's problem. At the same time, you know, I was very interested in writing about this woman at a time where women weren't even pretending they could have it all. It was like, no, you have to make a choice. And the Lady in the Lake has had this really blessed journey to Hollywood where everything's gone right. It's kind of crazy. Natalie Portman's going to play Maddie in an ah! Apple TV series. Lupita Nyong'o is going to be Cleo. It's pretty amazing and magical. But one thing that happened when the book was going around Hollywood and people were reading it is one man who was interested in optioning it, and he was not part of the team that ended up with the book, told me that Maddie's life was sad. And I said, no, no, I don't agree. I mean, I, I think I even joked. I said, are you mansplaining my book to me? <laughs> Because I think the Maddie we see at the end of the book, has she made sacrifices? Absolutely. Does she have it all? Absolutely not. Did she expect to have it all? No, that's not her expectation as a member of her generation. She has identified the thing that she wants and she's gone after it and she's gotten it. And she's not going to feel sorry for herself that that involved sacrifices. It's a spoiler, so we won't talk about it. I feel that Maddie does make a huge heartbreaking sacrifice. And for those people who read the book, they, or have read the book, they will understand when I talk about, there's a scene that takes place on a particular street corner as the sun is rising. And that's the moment of Maddie's choice. That's a real place in Baltimore. And when I walk past that street corner, I get kind of choked up because I feel bad that Maddie had to make the choice, but she did. And I I don't question the choice that she made, but yeah, she's horrible. She's horrible. And it, but she's horrible in sort of this careerist driven way that I think in a male character, I'm not saying we wouldn't notice it. I think we would romanticize it. We'd be like, oh, it's a shame. He can't have it all. Totally. He should have been able to have the career and, this other thing, you know, but, oh man, he's just so devoted and driven. And people look at Maddie and they're like, oh God, she's terrible. Yeah, but she's interesting and she's smart. Yeah. And she doesn't lie to herself. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Laura Littman, whose book Lady in the Lake is out now. You can read more about this novel at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, Laura answers more questions. And later in the show, we ask her about her literary white whale. So stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by Anywhere for You by the author of The Silent Treatment, Abby Greaves. This is a riveting story about a woman's search for her long lost love, a romantic and moving novel about finding love and happiness in unexpected places. Anywhere for you is on sale now. 
Welcome back to the show. This episode, we're speaking with Laura Lippman, author of Lady in the Lake. So interesting what you were saying about the choices that Maddie made as a woman from that generation. You know, one of the things I said to Eliza when we were talking about this book earlier is that this story, if it had been written in another time period, wouldn't necessarily have worked because of the things in society that these characters had to grapple with to create the situation of the book. That's a great observation. The two crimes I was inspired by took place in 1969. It was my plan to write a book set in 1966 because that was the year of this governor's race that had some really eerie parallels with the presidential race of 2016. And I just thought that was interesting. As it happens, that just recedes way into, it's like not that important to the book at all. But when I started researching 1966, I thought, this is an interesting year. This is a hinge year. It's after the JFK assassination, which, you know, has always been used to sort of America loses its innocence. But it's before things get really crazy in 68 and 69. It's, it's when things are changing. And one of the books I read in preparation to write this book was called 1966. And it was a study of what were the big single hits on the radio that year. And I found this one detail that I always thought was just 1966 in a nutshell, which is that it was a year that both King of the Road and the Rolling Stones satisfaction hit number one in the US in 66. And I'm like, well, that's 1966. And, and one thing <laughs> I did, I love to read microfiche. And I, I really believe that the best use of my time when I'm doing historical research is to look at advertising. Because advertising mm-hmm. is so much about what people are yearning for. Totally. And who you want to be and who is the idolized self. And I had so much time looking at the clothing ads from like 65 through 67. You know, the old-fashioned full-page newspaper ads for the big department stores and the line drawings. And you see this, you know, very, I mean, it's Baltimore, so everything's a little bit behind, but you see these kind of, (laughs) I love my hometown, but that's just true. You see the clothes becoming very self-consciously hip and, you know, becoming a little bit wilder. And as I would have said, a little bit groovier. And there's a lot in Lady of the Lake about clothing and fashion. And I kind of wanted to capture how a big part of Maddie's transformation is in what she covets. Wow, I love that. I have a question for you that sort of builds on what we were just talking about, all of these corners of Baltimore. The Washington Post called Lady in the Lake a love letter to Baltimore and its people. So I was curious if you could share a little bit about that was your intention with this book and if you feel like that's what it achieves or if you hope something different for it or, or what's the novel's connection to Baltimore for you? To me, it's indirectly a love letter to Baltimore. I'm going to get choked up talking about this. It's a love letter to the newsroom of my father's youth. My father moved us to Baltimore in 1965. So he would have been not quite 30. He would have been 35 when he took his job at the Baltimore Sun. So younger than Maddie. And I heard so many stories from my dad. And he worked at the proper sort of buttoned up newspaper. and. I would later work at the afternoon newspaper. And I had a lot of friends who worked at the News American, which is long gone. And I heard a lot of their stories. And so the newspaper that Maddie's working at is very clearly meant to be the News American. 
And one of the nicest bits of feedback I got about this book, I got just the other day from a colleague who started out at the News American. And there was so much stuff I made up that I got right. It was like, this person reminded me of her and this person reminded me of him. And so it's a love letter to a Baltimore newspaper. And so by extension, it's a love letter to Baltimore. But it, it was really a conscious desire to evoke the newsroom that my father would have known. And my, my dad's been gone over five years now. So it was sad and bittersweet corresponding with a lot of his colleagues but to try to learn more about what the newspapers were like in the 60s. Wow. I love that newspaper aspect of the book. Another thing that I loved about this novel, and you sort of touched on this earlier when you were talking about the baseball player, I think you have written this book in two dozen different points of view, like some crazy number of narrators. The alternating narrator is like common, but 20 or so different voices. How did that come to be? And what was that like? And how did you choose that? And did you have sticky notes keeping them straight? Like, tell us. So I figured out early on that Maddie's fatal flaw is her incuriosity. And here she is. She wants to be a human interest writer and she has no interest in humans. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought this is a good way to show what she's missing. I mean, she could have sat down and talked to any one of the people she talked to in her quest to learn the story of Cleo, and she would have had a story. They're all interesting people, you know, whether it's a waitress who's come to the city from West Virginia, the wife of a dry cleaning magnet, her friend's brother, who's a closeted gay man working in state government. All of those people had stories to tell and Maddie couldn't see that. I don't remember how that came about, but once I grabbed onto it, I was like, okay, it's got to be everybody. (laughs) And it sounded crazy when I was working on it. And it was the strange thing where when you saw all the voices together, they had a kind of cumulative power and they told the story of the city and the time and the place. And again, it's that issue of appropriation because I'm writing across gender, I'm writing across sexuality, I'm writing across class, I'm writing across race. I mean, I was like being everybody and I loved it. It was so much fun. Laura, we're almost out of time. But I really want to ask about your next project. Can you give us a sneak peek about what's the next book that we can read from you? My next book is so the opposite number because it's told from one person's point of view and it's extremely narrow and claustrophobic. It's called Dream Girl. And it's, it's kind of a spin on misery. I had been watching a lot of horror films and kind of noting how many of them required isolation to work. And I was like, can you isolate someone in a big city? And I was like, well, if somebody had a really bad fall and was confined to their bed, in a sense, they would be isolated. They would be dependent on the people who came and went in his apartment. And so I came up with this idea of a successful novelist. He's had a terrible fall. Nobody in this book would identify themselves as Jerry Anderson's number one fan. But somebody in this book is calling him, writing him. And at one point, even seemingly appearing in front of him, claiming to be the woman who inspired his most famous book, Dream Girl, and telling him that there's something that she wants from him. And nobody else in his life sees any evidence of these calls, visits, or letters. So he's asking himself, am I losing my mind? 
or am I in fact being stalked by a deranged person and what one should I root for? And so there I was in early 2019, beginning a book about somebody stuck at home who can't leave. And here we are. It's a very weird feeling. So yeah, that's what's next, dream girl. I'm on the edge of my seat. That sounds amazing. I know. Now I need to know, like, does he have a stalker? I hope he has a stalker. That's what I hope. (laughs) Things things get weird. Things get weird in Jerry Anderson's apartment. But yeah, you'll just have to read it, I guess, to find out what's going on with poor Jerry. Can't wait. So we have one more question for you, Laura. Each Mm -hmm. episode, we ask an author, what is your literary white whale? So this is a book that you've always either meant to read or one that you started reading and never finished. I cannot read Ulysses by James Joyce. I've tried so hard. There's something about Ulysses and I love Ireland. And I've, I've been to like Joyce's house and I've seen all of this, you know, but it's like, oh, it's defeated me so many times. <laughs> So you own a copy of the book. It just oh, yeah. taunts you. I've never gotten even 20 pages in. <laughs> well, I think that is the definition of a white whale for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so much fun having you. We really enjoyed talking about this book with you and just catching up. Thank you. It's great to talk to both of y'all and I so appreciate what you do. Thank you. That was New York Times bestselling author, Laura Lippman, whose remarkable book, Lady in the Lake, is out now. To find out more about Laura's books and how to buy them, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You know, Eliza, I actually told two friends about the podcast this week. Did you really? Yes, I had already told them about the podcast and I reminded them. (laughs) That counts too. (laughs) Remind your friends about this podcast. (laughs) You'll hear from us again in two weeks when we'll be speaking with Walter Thompson Hernandez, author of The Compton Cowboys. Please stay in touch with us in between episodes. We're both on Instagram. Find us at Tavia Reads and at Eliza is Reading. And of course, at Book Club Girl. You can join our next conversation. We'll be speaking with Alyssa Cole, author of the New York Times bestseller, When No One Is Watching, a psychological thriller that had us on the edge of our seats. You can email us at thegirls at bookclubgirl.com or post in the comments on our Facebook group. You can also leave us a voicemail. Our number is 212 207 7336. And if you leave a question, we will play it on the show. Before we go, a big thank you to our producer, Caroline Quash, who produced today's episode, and our audio editor and engineer, Samantha Doyle of Hangar Studios, to Sharon Rosenblum and Molly Simonson for helping us to schedule this interview, and to Lori Littman for coming on our show. Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy reading. Jerry Anderson's new apartment is a topsy-turvy affair. Living area on the second floor, bedrooms below. The brochure, it is the kind of apartment that had its own brochure when it went on the market in 2018, boasted of 360-degree views, but that was pure hype. PH2502 is the middle unit between two other duplex penthouses one owned by a sheik, the other by an Olympic swimmer. 
The three two-story apartments share a common area, a most uncommon common area, to be sure, a hallway with a distressed concrete floor, available only to those who have the key that allows one to press PH on the elevator. But not even the shake and the swimmer have 360-degree views. Nothing means anything anymore, Jerry has decided. No one uses words correctly, and if you call them on it, they claim that words are fungible, that it's oppressive and prissy not to let words mean whatever the speaker wishes them to mean. Take the name of this building, the View, V-U-E, at Locust Point. What is a view? And isn't the view what one sees from the building, not the building itself? The view is the view for people on the other side of the harbor, where, Jerry is told, there is a $12 million apartment on top of the residences connected to the Four Seasons Hotel. A $12 million apartment in Baltimore. Nothing makes sense anymore. This apartment cost $1.75 million, which is about what Jerry cleared when he sold his place in New York City, a two-bedroom he bought in the fall of 2001. How real estate agents had shaken their sleek blonde heads over his old-fashioned kitchen, his bidet-less bathrooms, as if his decision not to update them was indicative of a great moral failing. Yet his apartment sold for almost $3 million last fall, and as he understood the current tax laws, he needed to put the capital gains, less $250,000, in a new residence. Money goes a long way in Baltimore, and it was a struggle to find a place that could eat up all that capital without being nightmarishly large. So here he is at The View, where money seems to be equated with cold, hard things. Marble in the kitchen, distressed concrete floors, enormous industrial light fixtures. Impressive, his literary agent, Thiru Vignaraja, says, standing in the foyer, or what would be a foyer in an apartment with walls. But did they mention it was in Baltimore, Jerry? Very funny, Thiru. You know why I bought down here. Eight months ago, Jerry had been assured by doctors that his mother had less than two months to live. Her only desire was to die in her home, Jerry's boyhood home. Jerry, ever the dutiful son, figured he could grant that wish. Two months passed, then three. At month four, the doctors admitted they were fallible and that his mother might live longer than expected. Not at home, not forever, but she could remain there for the foreseeable future. Which, of course, is an oxymoron. The future cannot be seen. 